Welcome to Aircrew Interview, I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is our Tornado F3 special with Roy McIntyre. Roy is the highest houred F3 pilot with an astonishing 4,000 hours plus, and in this interview he chats about his training, the cockpit, wing sweep, flying on large exercises, and lots more. Remember you can help the channel to continue putting out regular quality content by becoming a patron via patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview, where you receive four different tiers, each having its own benefits. So don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss any future videos. I want to thank the sponsor of this video, Dirty Bird Aero, who designed technical clothing made from aircraft parts. Their latest Mac 2 Pilots polo shirts are made from the highest quality cotton and the sunglasses clip and buttons have been made from salvaged aluminium taken from the tail fin of Tornado F3 ZG797. Make sure you head over to their website to check them out at www.dirtybird.aero. And finally, thank you to Jet Art Aviation who let us use their Tornado ADV ZD902 for filming and you can check them out at jetartaviation.co.uk. Thank you and enjoy. You know, the last yeah. time I operated single seat was at Tight Weapons and a Hawk. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I, think it was, I think it was good and if you ask me now... Typhoon should it have been two seat? Well, of course I'm biased. And yeah, I, of I'm not familiar with Typhoon, so you know I can't be an expert there. But I enjoyed working as a, a team, uh, particularly when we went on ops, um, either on exercise or deployed on actual ops. We stopped mixing and matching within the squadron because in routine sort uh, training you would fly with different people just to spread the idea, spread the experience, etc. Younger guys flying with more experienced guy in the other cockpit. But when you go on ops, you're paired up, and that makes a difference. And yeah. I remember in the second Gulf War in particular, my nav, Gary and I, worked very well together. Yeah, very yeah. Well, and it was really very satisfying. I can imagine. So let's talk about some operations and exercises you've uh, been on. Uh, just explain what, what they're all about. Well, the exercises, um, whether they're domestic or overseas, are all about building up your skill in multi-element environment to try and blood you, as it were, towards what might happen in reality. And of course the most famous one is Red Flag. And Red Flag came about because they discovered in the Vietnam War, they being the Americans, the loss rate in the first 20 sorties was quite high. And I don't suppose that's any different from what the RAF experienced in World War II. Yeah. And what they then decided was, well, if we can get through those first 20 sorties back in the United States and get give them the experience, the chances are you could then survive longer or for you know have a higher probability of success when you actually go to war. Mm-hmm. So that's when these large-scale exercises came about. Mm-hmm. There was also the idea of the last thing you want to do is go into ops and it's the first time you've seen a 12-20 ship coordination. You, know, that's a lot. you don't want to be learning on the job. You mm-hmm. want to do that in a controlled environment. Mm-hmm. So it was a whole series of exercises developed. The RAF had some principally geared around defence of the United Kingdom, which quite by the fall of the, the the Soviets and the end of the Cold War, that was a sort of dinosaur-type yeah. scenario. Yeah. But that's what my initial training was all about. And we used to have 3D exercises, either based at Lukers or wherever, and the whole of the United Kingdom air defence, mm-hmm. bring, maybe bring in the Navy, perhaps NATO forces coming in as... Um, 
uh, opposition forces. Uh, Salty Hammer, I seem to remember, was one that, that yeah, guy. where it was just they were just trying to swamp us, etc. And that was good fun. It was very challenging, etc. Um, the ones overseas were great because you then start to face you work face to face with uh, other air forces, which you'd expect to do mm-hmm. um, in reality. Um, and then ultimately, there's the American ones, which of course you know were the real big, but nothing to do with the fact it was based in Las Vegas. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> So how do you think other nations, when you went on exercises, viewed the F3? Did they think it was a threat, or do you think it was a bit of a joke, like I've heard before? No. I, I, I think we went through phases of people not really giving us too much credibility, um, and I think that culminated just before we got the AMRAM, because we, yeah. we had the Skyflash missile, which was semi-active, limited range, very old weapon, and really... It meant our sword was not very long and everybody knew it. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter how much wile and trickery and situational awareness the rest of the kit gave us. Mm -hmm. If your sword is a bit short... You're done. (laughs) You're done. Um, So really at that stage, we kind of went through a phase of, you know, these are not top dogs. They're the second division boys that can fill in the gaps. When we got the uh, AMRAM which is the same weapon as the F-15, F-16, F-18s were carrying, and then the ASRAM, suddenly we were back. Notwithstanding the performance limitation that we had, Mm -hmm. suddenly we had a sword that people had to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And given to the fact that our level of knowledge of what was happening in the battle was about as high as anybody had, that made us quite dangerous. Uh, let's talk about DACT. How did the F3 fare against the types at the time? Mm. Yeah. The problem with the F3, and another aspect of it of it getting bad publicity, was this, oh, well, it can't turn. You know, it's not a dogfighter. It wasn't designed as a dogfighter. No. The F3 was designed for that dinosaur scenario I was talking about a few moments ago. It was designed to go out, sit on cap, not use a lot of fuel, and then go and take a long-range attack on Soviet bombers coming towards us. Nobody talked about fighters, and indeed, when it first came into service, it only had two short-range air-to-air missiles, whereas the Phantom had four, and only two sidewinders. Because they said, well, you're not going to go into combat, you only need two, as if you got jumped, and the air crew had to stand and scream and shout for quite a while before they agreed to add on two more uh, sidewinder launchers to bring us back up to 4-4. But the airframe and the engines came from a low-level bomber, the GR. And while the engines are more powerful, it didn't give us that much. And so it was never a dogfighter. And so there's a phrase that uh, uh, about in air combat, the thing we wanted to avoid was a knife fight in a telephone box, which is what the F-16, which the MiG-29 wanted to do, get in close, turn hard. So we would, all, all our tactics were... At long range, mm-hmm. hold you know a bit like a run, rugby handoff. Mm-hmm. Keep them at range, so that the ra- the uh, turn radius wasn't a critical factor. Mm-hmm. And the moment you've got space, you've got opportunity to get out. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that was our mentality. Mm-hmm. It's not right. We're going to go in here and stay there, plant the flag, and shoot this guy down. If we were forced into a visual merge, it's let's survive and let's get out of it and set this up and come back in again on our terms. Mm-hmm. So to, to answer your question about DACT, it was good fun, exceedingly hard work, 
and quite frequently disappointing, <laughs> depending on what the scenario was. Our strengths started at range, because mm-hmm. we've got the long-range weapons, and if we come in with speed, a quick hit as we get to... <laughs> yep, a quick hit at the visual merge, and then disappear quickly. Course, That's yeah. the way we would do it. So during... DACT, did you ever have any tricks? I heard that you used to sweep the wings back so it looked like you're going faster than you were. Is it true? <laughs> um, you could try that, but the trouble is if the opposition doesn't buy it, you are in trouble because you really are putting yourself in a very difficult position. Um, it's a bit, as I say, it's a bit like driving the car in too high a gear at too low a speed. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, if people look at it and think, oh, the wings are going back, he's going to run sort of style, it, it's a bluff, to be honest. Uh, to be honest, I, wouldn't, I didn't really do too much of that. I would work as hard as I can mm-hmm. to do it properly to get the best out of the aircraft. Yeah. yeah. And what aircraft did you actually go up against? Gosh, yeah, pretty much everything um, from the, most of the American uh, Air Force, from their Phantoms, F-16s, F-15s, F-111s. Uh, F-111 was the only aircraft that was faster than, than us at low level. Quick. Yeah, yeah, this um, this aircraft was exceedingly quick at low level, particularly in the early days before they detuned the engines. Um, they did that for two reasons. One, there was a couple of instances of failures of the of the engine, which um, catastrophic blow-ups, yeah. um, and then obviously the economics of um, making engines last longer, and they tuned them back. So that <laughs> took the speed off. And as long as we didn't have stores, the like tanks on, etc., 800, 850 knots That's at low moving. level. Yeah, yeah. Took great delight in going past Buccaneers in cold power <laughs> because Buccaneers could run away from oh, yeah. Phantoms, and that was well. their that was their technique. Down mm-hmm. to fifty feet, put the the, the Phantom in its uh, six o'clock. Bye bye. Yeah, can't do that with an F three. No, and we used to go past it. Hello, there you go. Um, so we'd work with the F one elevens. U.S. Navy was quite interested. The Tomcat. Did you ever go up against yeah. the Tomcat? How yep. did you fare in that? Because that's no. It was. I was thinking at the time. Only a couple of times did I get to do that, and I was thinking, "Oh, I've got a chance." No, maybe it was a real good guy, better guy than me. But uh, quite quickly, I lost energy, and I tried to stay in a turning fight with them. It's not the thing to do. I'm surprised because the F-14 is very similar to the. Yes, it is, but it's got much bigger engines and can hold thrust. Its energy levels a lot better. No, No. Um, French, the Mirages, of course, and the other people that have um, Mirages, etc. Personally speaking, <coughs> excuse me, only once, and they were on the same side, did I ever see MiG-29s, and I'd say that it was when we were out in uh, uh, TLP and we had Luftwaffe MiG-29s. Ah, yes, okay. So I didn't go up against them, but I know people who have done um, to, to have a go at them. Good yep. It's quite similar to the Lightning in terms of fuel. Yeah. Quite short-legged, yeah. Um, very smoky engines. Worse than the J-79s on the Phantom. You could see them a long way away. Um, But, oh gosh, was it strong. Mm -hmm. Very strong. So let's talk about QRA. I'm guessing you probably stood for QRA. Um, Could you tell us what this is about and did you have any memorable moments? Yeah, well, quick reaction alert. Basically, we are the policemen for the United Kingdom uh, airspace and the UK air defence region, which is beyond our national airspace. It's areas which are notionally international airspace, free travel, but we have declared to NATO that we will, our part will be to police this particular uh, piece of airspace, and that goes across the whole of the NATO structure. 
anybody who is entering there without a flight plan, we want to know what he's, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Chances are they're just snooping around, whoever it is. But it could be, particularly in the Cold War days, you're thinking that's a conflict-type profile. And, of course, since 9-11, there's that oh, other aspect yeah. as well, which has come into it. So I did it on the Phantom and on the F3. Um, and, of course, today it's taken on by the Typhoon. Mm-hmm. I know the one other place in the F3 that I did do... Well, the two other uh, locations apart from the United Kingdom that I did QRA. One was in the Falklands, obviously. And I also did a spell out in Lithuania, oh, um, right. which is called Op Solstice back in 2004, yeah. when we took on this rolling uh, duty of helping the Balkan states with their QRA, which I know is continuing to this day. Yeah. Probably the most memorable Q sortie that I've got is the first time I actually went up against uh, some Soviet... Bombers. It was a Friday. I was on 43 Squadron. It was um, Phantom Days. Um, so it was 1987. Uh, we were launched and the weather wasn't that brilliant, but there was an E3 up. Victor Tanker in those days came along Beautiful. and uh, we were up and they said they've got two contacts. Eventually came up along into blue sky and there was the two vapour trails and eventually alongside two Bear Charlies, which was quite eye-opening. The tail guns were up, so they weren't pointing at us, but I know the RWR was making all sorts of noises, but I wasn't paying (laughs) attention to that. But it was a bit strange, because we're up alongside these big silver aircraft, a big red star on the tail, guys looking out at us. They weren't waving too much. Um, But I thought, no, this is it. Short of uh, war, this is me doing my job, and I found it quite professionally fulfilling to be there knowing that I've got eight live missiles on board um, and this is it exactly right and we eventually picked up another aircraft a a Bear Delta which is the maritime um, surveillance one um, later on so it was about a three hour trip and uh, yeah I can remember most of it it was brilliant yeah. yeah. Did you get any snaps from that? There were, yeah. The backseater carries, in those days, it was just film camera mm-hmm. um, and digital nowadays. But yeah, of course, the Intel people are looking for the basic info of which airframes it was, which were there, and then they will look at them and go, oh, extra aerial. Mm, that's strange. Modification there, whatever. They'll want to know if they did anything tactic wise, manoeuvring, all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't just quite just sitting there and waving. Yeah. There was, it then became reporting as to where they're going, what they're doing, but also gathering a little bit of int. Um, I, I don't know if this is true, you could maybe tell me, but apparently the Russians used to change the serial numbers, so like the MOD would, oh, right. you know, um, you not heard about I that? I hadn't no. heard about that, but there was one point, that was we always go for the door number. Yeah, the door which is, So we'd them. always used to take the door numbers. Mm-hmm. Now, that may become apparent for the Intel people who um, would look at that and go, ah, that number is different, but we know that airframe. That We didn't get into the, the weeds of that when yeah. you were actually flying. So let's talk about some of your squadrons. Uh, what squadrons were you based with on the F3? Well, it started with 11 when it reformed in 1988 and uh, stayed with them until I was posted across the 23 because there was a few moving around at that stage. So just in January 90, I moved across to uh, 23 Squadron and... Um, August 90, Kuwait was invaded. Mm. That was, I remember that day in particular because the word in in August 90, um, the word came out quite quickly that that Li Ming Wing were going to put together a force to reinforce Saudi Arabia. Because, of course, at that stage, we didn't know that uh, the Iraqis were going to stop in Kuwait. There was every indication they were going to keep on rolling and go straight into Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. 
there were two Tornado squadrons, F3 squadrons in Cyprus by chance, handing over, when they were out on air-to-air gunnery, so they quickly cobbled together a unit, sent them out, but they were not, they, they were not configured for war. Yeah. Um, so it was the Leeming Wing that was going to get configured for war, and we eventually went out in September. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually posted, would you believe, in the middle of the Gulf, of First Gulf War. Oh, really? They posted me <laughs> as an instructor to the OCU. So to answer your question, 23, when I eventually came back, you know, Christmas 90, uh, when the Lukers wing took over, uh, I went straight down to Connorsby as an instructor now on 229 OCU. And then two, while I was there, 229 OCU became 56 Squadron. When 56 folded at Watersham, yes, yes. the number plate was going to be maintained. So on the 1st of July, 92, the OCU became 56 Squadron. Right. I was on there. I uh, did the QI course, uh, the Qualified Weapons Instructors course in 93. And when I finished that, I was posted to the F3 OEU mm-hmm. just across the road. Um, and that was quite tremendous. Professionally, it was extremely interesting. I was there for uh, nearly four years, and uh, my first boss on the OEU said to me, never as a flight lieutenant will you have so much influence and power. Wow. And he was right. That's a powerful statement. Yes, it is. And he was absolutely right, mm-hmm. because, oh, you say one word, and it goes straight back up. They said, the OEU have said. So you had to be careful yeah. Um, people listened to what the OEU said, and it was a very, it was a great tour, mm-hmm. great tour, great people, small team. Um, it was a bit like getting the chance to taste every sweetie in the sweetie shop before they go on sale, wow. and indeed some of the sweets never went on sale. Yeah. Basically, new bits of kit, new bits of software, new ways of presenting information, etc. Across the whole piece mm-hmm. of the airframe, mm-hmm. both the the aircraft itself, the weapon system, the avionics. And tactics. Mm-hmm. It was great. Mm-hmm. It really was. So the OEU there for about four years, and then it was back up to Lucas, back to my beloved 43 Squadron as the QY pilot. Um, I was there for a couple of years, then moved across, the, across as they say, uh, to Treble One. And actually ended up on Treble One for seven years as the QY. Oh, wow. uh, I was there for quite a while. Uh, and then back across the runway to 56, who had moved up from Coningsby by that stage to make way for the Typhoon, uh, and this time on to 56 as part of the Staneval team. Mm-hmm. And uh, then 56 disbanded, and yeah. the training element was absorbed <laughs> back into 43 squadron. You're all over the place. Yeah, so I was back into 43 again, uh, albeit on the training side. And then it all came to an end on the 5th of February 2009, my last trip. You certainly had a good career. But yeah. uh, let's talk about the squadrons. Did they, each squadron have a different mentality or were they all similar? Yes and yes. Because yeah. we're all the same. Yeah. But just like football teams, rugby teams, etc. I'm better than the, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the rivalries there, they're very much coloured by their boss at the time and the squadron execs. Mm-hmm can be good or bad, that's all I'll say um, opportunities that happened, which squadrons get opportunity to do a particular exercise or go on deployments etc, etc um, but generally speaking mm-hmm. we're all the same, we're all training to the same standard, there's a lot of crossover particularly at the junior levels mm-hmm. um, so you find that um, they're all pretty good, but of course everybody's got their own allegiances and mine was set when I was a schoolboy. so the black and white checkers were always going to be the one for me yeah. So you've obviously had a great time in the F3. Do you have uh, any memorable stories you can share? Maybe one or two just uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. There's, um, 
probably there was one I was thinking of. The strange things that happened. It was on Forty Three Squadron, and we were going out to Cyprus um, for air to air gunnery. Now there weren't any tankers available for us, so we were going to have to stage from Lukers to somewhere, and we we're having difficulty getting a place to accept us to refuel. Now we had an Italian uh, backseater on exchange with us. And he used his contacts and got us into uh, the Italian Air Force test airfield called Pratica di Mari, which is just on the coast about halfway down. Quite a small airfield, but they were happy. I was leading the, thir- the, the second force ship. Um, the weather wasn't that brilliant, actually. Um, and we come down through France. So we get on to talk to Roma Control. And they started giving us vectors down towards Pratica di Mari and kept descending me down. And are you visual the surface yet? No. And getting down to about 3,000 feet, I had one in close and, a, and my other two aircraft were in close but on radar trail. And I was starting to get a little bit conf- concerned that we're going to get in. They said, oh, tell you, what, you come left and head this way. Okay, down. And you descend now to 2,000 feet. Okay. And then just about that point, I was starting to see the ground. And I said, I said, I can think I can see the ground. And they said, okay, you're now clear to 1,500 feet. At which point we come out, we break cloud and I'm over a large city. <laughs> and I thought, what on earth's going on? So I can see the ground. So I said, like, okay, you come, come right, head 240. I come right, head 240, and the Colosseum is in front of me. Wow. <laughs> I've got a four ship of F3s at 1,500 feet over the centre of Rome. Crikey. Man, am I in trouble. <laughs> no, not at all. Really? They just said, keep going. And eventually found the coast, turn left. Oh, there's Pratica de Mari. We break into circuit land. I was waiting on the police, waiting on me. But no, no, that no. That was Ro- London. <laughs> Roma Control were quite happy, 50. So that was that one I remember distinctly. Another one that um, I can't let pass uh, happened out in Cyprus. It was when I was in 11 Squadron. We had just deployed out there, having uh, declared to NATO. And we were doing some air-to-air gunnery. Now, because we had just set the squadron up, we had a holding officer with us at Leeming who had to do a lot of work preparing the ops room, display boards, all the usual stuff. Um, she was waiting to go um, to a supply course because she was going to be a supply officer. Um, when her course date came through, the boss said, well, you've done so much work, you can have a trip in the jet. Now, by that stage, the boys had got an inkling that something might just be going on between this young lady and myself. Um, so they let me fly her. Um, but in those days, it wasn't mandatory as it was latterly, but they did actually put the mission recording system on. I didn't know that at the time. What that does is gives total audio both cockpits. And what they were trying to do was catch us out and get a few choice comments ah. when we were flying. We actually caught them out because what happened was when I was flying the aircraft supersonic at 250 feet just south of Akrotiri, I proposed to her and she said yes. And in fact, it's our 30th wedding anniversary this July. Well, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so that trip is quite memorable. It eventually made the RAF news and um, the, me- the, the media got hold of it as well for the Valentine's Day following. Um, so that was my 15 minutes worth of fame, as it were. Well, you'll never forget your anniversary now, will you? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Roy, so how long did you spend on the F3? And I heard you the most highest hours on the F3. Yeah, so it'd be 21 years in total and 4,560, I think it is. I have my logbook here. Um, but in terms of a front-seater, 
I was the only one to get above 4,000. There's a, a Nav who I've known for a very long time. Uh, had about, he's got about 300 hours more than me. Um, uh, but he just short of cracking 5,000. But we were the only two that got over the 4,000. How did it happen? Basically, I always wanted to fly. I didn't want to be promoted. I didn't want to get higher up in the ranks um, because the higher you go, the further away you are from the cockpit. So I did throughout my whole career. I did everything possible to be as valuable to the Air Force as possible in the cockpit. So I got all the qualifications I could, inspirating examiner, air combat instructor, QI, backseat instructor, all that sort of stuff, just to stay in the cockpit. And I was very, very lucky because I never did a ground tour. Well, you certainly had a great career, Roy, that's yeah. for sure. OK, so Roy, do you have any hobbies? Yeah, I'm a, quite a keen photographer. Um, have been pretty much all my life, um, mostly landscapes and stuff like that. Very interested in rugby, I don't play anymore. Uh, <laughs> Scotland supporter, so that takes me through the mill sometimes, as I did on Saturday. Um, military history, quite interested in military history um, mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. and really ill. Mm, of course. I was going to ask, ask you that, what's your favourite tipple? Oh, at the moment it's uh, a, a, a bath beer called Jewel. Oh, okay. Yeah, very nice. I discovered that when we visited the city a couple of months ago. Very, mm -hmm. very, very nice. Yeah. Jewel. Yeah. So what's the favourite aircraft you've ever flown? Oh, it has to be the Phantom. Phantom? Has, wow. Phantom. Even all the hours on the tornado? Yeah, so wow. it has to be the Phantom. I have been in the F-16, I have been in a Typhoon, I have been in an F-15. Um, but not the Phantom, it's just a classic aircraft. Of course. So is the one you wish you could have flown that you didn't? Spitfire. Spitfire? Yep. BBMF was, when I was, all the time I was at Coningsby, um, I need to be careful what I say here, but it was a little bit of a closed shop. Uh, limited number of slots, um, one of which went to OC Ops, one went to the station commander, assuming there were pilots, and there were three other slots available to fly the aircraft. Um, and there wasn't much movement personnel-wise, shall I say, when I was there. That would have been nice. And then latterly, once you get a family, it becomes more difficult because things like that, displays, always over weekends, mm -hmm. cost quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So Spitfire, we'd like Mosquito as well, but Spitfire's probably the one. Yeah, I think Spitfire, yeah. yeah. So what are you currently up to these days? Do you still fly? Um, I've just finished completely. Um, I, after I left the F3, I became uh, a QFI and went to the University Air Squadron System, flying the Tutor, initially at Glasgow for three years, and then back to Lukers, mm -hmm. east of Scotland, University Air Squadron, as the deputy boss, and I just finished there in November. So, strictly speaking, I have retired completely, um, haven't maintained my PPL, and up until now, have not missed it, actually. I was just ready to stop. Wow. However, comma, 12 AEF at... Um, Lookers, that's the flight that fly the air cadets, have been on the phone saying, Roy, would you like to come back? And so there's been forms coming through the door, so never say never. But course, I think yeah. I might find myself back in a tutor uh, by the summer flying air cadets again. Of course. So overall, did you enjoy your RAF career? Oh, brilliant. Only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, yes, made mistakes, had a few shocks and what have you, but uh, would do it all again. Mm -hmm. Would I like to do it now? I don't know. You always think I was in, you know, rosy-coloured spectacles. My time was the best time. I'm sure the guys who are going through Typhoon and uh, with the F-35 on the rise, they're saying, our time's the best time. Whereas you talk to somebody in the 1950s. It's all subjective. Yeah, it yeah. is. But 
I was happy that I had mm-hmm. a chance, and no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Well, Roy, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. 